0: This podcast series is based on a book called Beyond Reasonable Greed, Why Sustainable Business is a Much Better Idea, by Wayne Visser and Clem Sumter. Read by myself, Wayne Visser. Money. Extending a Helping Trunk. One of the fundamental flaws of the lion economy is that unless you are a predator, or lucky enough to be one of the elephants selected by an ethical investor, in the previous section, your chances of survival in the open bush are low. You need to be either working for a lion company or you need to be a foxy entrepreneur. If your social upbringing, your education, your set of beliefs or your economic connection only allows you to eat grass, you can forget it. You're probably dead meat. The Old View of Economics is that if only lion companies are allowed to go about their business without interference, there will be jobs for all, full employment. This being the case, anyone not working deserves to suffer, because it means they're basically lazy, or not trying hard enough to learn how to hunt. Hence, it is fitting that they are condemned to a survivalist existence, as somebody has to pick up the crumbs that fall from the lion's table. Problem is that economic growth is no longer, if ever it was, a guarantee for creating jobs. Jobless economic growth is the new reality. Companies in the US Fortune 500 list, for example, shed literally millions of jobs in the last two decades of the 20th century. Nor have the foxy entrepreneurs been able to make up the enormous shortfall of jobs, especially in vulnerable developing economies. As a result, there are hundreds of millions of people whose potential is wasting away while they struggle to make ends meet without any source of income. This type of economic barbarism rubs elephants up the wrong way. It goes against their beliefs about human rights, democracy, and ethical behavior. More than this, it goes against good common sense. Therefore, a pioneering group of elephants are arguing that a fundamental reperception needs to occur about the way that we structure work and welfare. We have to move our focus from creating employment to creating livelihoods. We have to empower people to put whatever skills and talents they may have to good use. People should not have to spend all their energy and resources on struggling to survive, nor should they have to wait to be offered a job, or to be told that they are economically valuable only when they engage in productive work for someone else in the private or public sector. But how would a more universal model of empowerment be achieved? There are no easy answers or ready-made solutions to this one. The shape-shifting has yet to occur. We have to de-link ourselves from the notions of classical Western economics and come up with ideas from other sources. In this vein, there are three powerful avenues that merit further explanation. The first two have been around for some time, and the third is beguiling in its simplicity. All three have the potential to start stretching our snouts into trunks and our fangs into tusks. They are barter networks, parallel currencies, and the basic income grant. Barter networks are one way to address the apparent scarcity of money, most estimates place the value of bartering at 10-20% to 20% of world trade today, and much of this is made up of highly sophisticated transactions. In the US, there are information networks operating barter systems worth more than $7.5 billion a year. Although they have their limitations, barter networks have great potential for empowering communities that are cash poor. One inspiring example is called Adopt-A-Neighbor a scheme which Lawrence Snell, a former insurance consultant, coordinates in Cape Town, South Africa. He describes the seed for the idea as follows. As a child growing up in the informal settlement of El after being evicted by the government from the suburb of Vasco, I was exposed to the kanala system of empowerment among the Muslim community. Kanala means much more than literally Please, it's something about doing things for Allah. This system is chore-related and not about monetary value. End quote. Today, Adopt-A-Neighbor coordinates a barter exchange system among its local Strontfontein community of 4,000 families. The barter network's philosophy just about sums it up. Their mission is helping you achieve sustained, fulfilled living. And their vision is, when you need help... We are all the help you need. Their goal is to answer the question, how may we help you successfully? And their currency is goodwill, which is not measurable. The poverty-stricken city of Curitiba in Brazil is another example of the creative use of bartering. In the 1990s, the city faced two problems, an underutilized public transport system and mounting piles of garbage in the streets so the mayor invented a new system where he would give one bus token in return for each bag of pre-sorted garbage delivered. This extended to giving students notebooks in exchange for the garbage. Building on the success of this initial experiment, Curitaba managed to complete numerous public projects for which there was no official budget and thereby improved the quality of life of its citizens drastically. Parallel currencies are simply a more flexible form of barter exchange system. The basic idea, which is to have local currencies running in parallel with the official national monetary system, is not as new as some might think. Among the first examples of this phenomenon are the Guernsey Island Notes, issued in 1819, as well as Robert Owen's National Equitable Labour Exchanges in London, in Birmingham, and Joseph Warren's time notes in Cincinnati in the 1830s, plus Sylvia Gesell's stamp script money in the Austrian town of Wargel during the years of the Great Depression in the 1930s. In fact, the Depression subsequently caused hundreds of European and North American cities to issue their own money in order to speed up recovery. One of the initiatives to endure was Switzerland's Wuerr Script A currency uh, exclusive to Wermesson, a member-owned cooperative exchange system, started in 1946. By the mid-1990s, the cooperative comprised thousands of members and was responsible for 19.7 million Swiss francs, equivalent of trade. Today, one of the most popular and enduring parallel currency systems is LETS. It stands for the Local Exchange Trading System. Let's was first established by Michael Linton in 1983 when his rural community in British Columbia, Canada, was devastated by an economic recession. The system allowed members to trade both goods and services using a combination of conventional currency and community-created credit called green dollars. Members' balances are kept on a central computer program and are updated on a daily basis. Let's has since spread to other countries, including the US, England, New Zealand and Australia. In developing countries, there are numerous variations on the let's theme from countries like Thailand, Mexico, Ecuador and Senegal. Hazel Henderson claims that a similar type of local currency rationale was behind China's record run of domestic growth. Transactions between Chinese citizens were all done using village money, or renminbi, which was not easily convertible to the yuan or to the foreign exchange certificates issued to visitors, thus the bulk of income generated internally did not leak out of the country. Let schemes and other parallel currencies display all the essential features of money. They are a means of exchange, a unit of value, a store of worth, a form of organisation and a relationship of trust. Importantly, however, they tackle the problem of low liquidity since they do not require participants in the scheme to have a formal job, an income stream, or a stock of money to get themselves started. The genius of parallel currencies is that money is only created by the act of goods or services being exchanged. Hence, they don't lead to inflation, but spread wealth to where it is most needed in a community. Before moving on to the third idea... One of us, Clem Sunter, has for several years proposed a variation of let's, the establishment of local stock exchanges, so that local venture capital finds its way into local businesses. It makes sense for investors to be able to visit the entrepreneurial ventures they invest in and inspect the books. This they can only do if they live in the neighborhood and get acquainted with the owners of the businesses. The shame at the moment is that the bulk of any savings that a community does manage to accumulate usually finds its way via the local branch of the banks into the big city projects because the latter are regarded by the bank's head office as a safer bet. Gone are the days when bank managers were regarded as prominent leaders in the community playing the crucial role of extending credit to farmers and tradesmen, particularly when they had fallen on hard times. Today, most bank managers are rotated, if they still exist, so that they never really get to know their clients. And all loan requests are handled centrally by bureaucrats and computers with the consequence that only your assets and not your character count in obtaining a loan. And who wants an umbrella in the sunshine? The final jumbo-sized concept for delinking survival and jobs is the institution of a basic citizen's income, which has been promoted by the London-based New Economics Foundation for a decade now and is gaining support worldwide. The basic idea is that every citizen should be entitled to a minimum annual grant that will keep him or her just above the poverty line. South African economist Margaret Leijam explains the concept as follows. All nationals would be entitled to a basic income grant from the cradle to grave. It would not be means-tested. It is not a safety net for losers. It would be enough to supply basic needs, but not enough to discourage people from working for money. It would be less for children and more for old people over working age. It would be given out automatically, like a pension or child allowance. It would require no bureaucracy to administer. It could be financed in a number of ways, mainly through one of the alternative taxes, such as eco-taxes. She explains that a basic income grant would enable all citizens to have a stake in the economy. It would boost purchasing power for everyone. Hence, it would stimulate the market for local enterprise. It would enable some essential work, like childcare, to be done full-time. Introducing a basic income grant would prevent extreme labor exploitation, since people would not be desperate enough to accept appalling conditions of work. It would also end the extreme poverty and desperation that undoubtedly fuels crime, and it would put an end to the cramping humiliation of the fear of starvation. All of these ideas, barter exchange networks, parallel currencies and the basic income grant concept, are attempts to release the masses of poor and unemployed people from the claws of the lion economy that ties survival to formal, money-paying jobs. We're not suggesting that these are the best or the only ways to solve the problem of community economic empowerment. They are, however, illustrations of how we can begin shape-shifting towards an elephant economy that successfully includes all people and cares for them, rather than cutting them off and throwing them on the lion's trash heap.